Hello, and welcome to Spotlight on Action, produced by the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network, commonly known as the LAN. I'm your host today, Aparna Higgins, Senior Advisor to the LAN and a Senior Policy Fellow at the Duke Margolis Center for Health Policy. The LAN Spotlight on Action series features LAN stakeholders discussing real-world actions and opportunities to transform the healthcare system through alternative payment models or APMs while aligning with land goals and initiatives focused on health equity, healthcare access, and value-based care. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Land CEO Forum Co-Chair, Dr. Mark Harrison, President and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare, a healthcare network of more than 41,000 providers serving patients throughout the Intermountain West, particularly Utah, Idaho, and Nevada. Under Mark's leadership, Intermountain Healthcare is at the forefront of transforming our healthcare system to one that is more agile and responsive to the needs of patients, rewards providers for positive outcomes, and addresses barriers to care and social determinants of health head on. Mark, it's always great to talk to you. Welcome to today's podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time um, for today's conversation. You know, Aparna, I've really been looking forward to this. Um, so can't wait to hear what, what you want to talk about and have a great conversation. Great. So let's just jump right in. Um, I Please. wanted to discuss several broad themes with you today, focused primarily on the work you have done in terms of leading Intermountain Healthcare's transition to value-based payment and how those in initiatives can serve as a model for innovation and in responding to public health emergencies or the PHE, such as the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and as you might recall, a year ago, the land launched the healthcare resiliency framework that included both short and long-term actions uh, to build resiliency in our healthcare system. And your organization made a commitment to support that framework. So can you talk about some of the actions that Intermountain Healthcare took initially during the beginnings of the public health emergency to help create resilience? So Aparna, we, I, we have a, a bit of an unfair advantage um, in that our system and our operating model is really um, set up to achieve what land would like to do broadly. And we, have, we do it in a, in a microcosm. Mm -hmm. So we're a pretty big system. You, you gave some statistics. Um, about half of our revenue now is completely aligned with um, taking full financial and clinical risk for people. And um, as much as I hate what the public health emergency has meant to so many people and how much I mourn the loss of so many lives in the United States, um, we're, we've been bound and determined all the way through to make good come of this. And some of that good is really leaning into what a model that's designed to keep people well can do to increase the resiliency of our healthcare system. And um, you know, we've seen again and again over the last, can you believe it's almost two years? I mean, it, it, it's astounding to me. Um, so in, in the last 20 months or so, we have seen systems that, um, particularly on the provider side that are organized around keeping people well, having had the agility to navigate actually quite well, both clinically, socially, and financially. And so whether it's telehealth, whether it's digital transformation, whether it's distance work and distance care, um, whether it's organizing around community health workers, um, 
all, all tools are at our disposal and we've deployed them quickly, pretty thoroughly. And we're trying really hard to make sure that as in some ways the world goes back to some semblance of what it was before, that we don't go back to the same way of delivering healthcare, that we use this as an opportunity to make this uh, uh, catalysis uh, stick. Great. Um, maybe if I could uh, follow up on some of the things you mentioned. Of course. You talked about um, several ways in which you've you know, deployed your workforce, if I were to call it that, in terms of delivering care. You mentioned digital transformation, telehealth, distance care, use of community health workers. Could you talk a little bit, how, and also the fact that you know, we're almost two years into this pandemic. So sort of reflecting back from the start until now, could you talk right. a little bit more about how you know, your response has evolved in terms of ensuring resilience and ensuring that patients who are served by your system, you know, get access? Yes, and I'll, I'll be um, blunt, you know, I think the beginning of the um, pandemic, even though we made really rapid pivots around distance care and um, having our workforce um, uh, largely become a remote workforce, except for direct clinic, clinical care, uh, we did not, and we've written about this, this is no secret, uh, we were really disturbed to see uh, the impact that race had on outcomes um, from, from COVID-19. And we had exactly the same results that the rest of the country did mm -hmm. in terms of uh, people who were people of color did much worse um, in our care than, than white people did, and particularly middle-class and upper-middle-class white people. So we... Um, we actually begin to measure. We did, you know, Intermountain is a very measurement-driven organization, and um, we have a tight operating model, and we think a lot about uh, achieving very predictable um, uh, approaches to care. And as the pandemic has worn on, we've seen those gaps narrow. They're not gone all the way, but they've, they're a lot better than they were. And we realized that Equal care, for instance, in an ICU, which we really believe we were providing, did not necessarily achieve equitable outcomes. And we've needed to do things like um, work with the state of Utah, among other places, and uh, deploy community health workers into communities of color and make sure that those are the folks who are educating their neighbors about how to keep themselves well, what to do if they're sick, and the advantages of things like vaccination. And um, I think it's that's what's gonna have to happen across American healthcare, regardless of whether we're in a public health emergency or not, if we're gonna begin to have an equitable healthcare system. Okay, um, maybe sort of to follow up on that, you talked about your organization being very measurement driven. And I know that one of the challenges with addressing health disparities is actually being able to have the data on hand to, to know what uh, the degree of disparities are in collection of race, ethnicity data, and so forth. I was hoping you could maybe touch upon some of the actions you took to, um, you know, to ensure this kind of measurement-based approach to addressing health disparities. So first you have to have the people who are providing care believe that there's a problem. Um, some people were smacked in the face by it, like the folks in the emergency department and like the folks in the ICU. Um, but we also did a lot of listening. We listened to people of color, we listened to our own caregivers, we listened to patients. Um, and we heard some pretty incredible stuff. And you know, that in combination with reading the 
healthcare and equity literature much more broadly, we went back to our clinicians and we said, boy, we have an expectation that each of our clinical programs are the same as an institute or a service line. That's our parlance um, at Intermountain. We want everybody to do at least one project where we take a hard look at our performance and understand um, how we're doing. Mm -hmm. And um, we had many of the same problems that the rest of the country's had, whether it's around maternal mortality, infant mortality. Um, uh, we actually are identifying some differences in stroke outcome that we haven't completely parsed out yet. But um, it, I think the thing that's been really enlightening for us and unifying is that this doesn't become a set of political statements or a bunch of feelings. And mm -hmm. politics are important. Feelings are very important. But um, we are starting to have a common fact base amongst all the people who provide care at Intermountain, regardless of their political persuasions, nobody who's a healthcare provider wants somebody to have worse outcomes based on the color of their skin. They just don't. Yeah. And um, it's provided a background for us to normalize the discussion of healthcare inequities and start to work on it just like we'd work on anything else falls, line infections, mm -hmm. pressure ulcers, you, you name it, uh, surgical site infections. And I think we're starting to make real progress because we're treating this um, with a great deal of respect, but in the same way we've had success in so many other areas. Okay, um, that's hopeful. I guess maybe to tie this back to something you said earlier about half of your revenue being in full financial and clinical risk. That's I'm correct. Interested in your thoughts in terms of what role being in these kinds of value-based models has played in your ability to make, to better address health equity? Look, it's just so, it seems so simple, Aparna, but it's so hard to do. It takes real courage uh, to make the changes necessary. The advantages are I can do whatever I need to do to keep people well. Home health workers, hospital at home, remote monitoring, home visits, providing people with transportation, I can do what I need to do in order to help keep people stay well. And I don't need to worry about um, how many beds are full mm -hmm. um, in order to do it. Uh, and <clears throat> we're able to say to the, uh, the clinicians, please just do what's right. Please be careful with resources. Do no more for somebody than they actually need. And increasingly we have aligned the comp compensation model for the clinicians to be al also aligned with this value-based approach. And, in fact, this morning we had a long conversation with our executive team. We've created a high value surgical network now. And um, for a number of different surgical specialties, we can identify who the high value providers are. And we're beginning to direct patients towards them uh, through Select Health and other mechanisms. So Select Health being our insurance arm. So that's the, that, those are the kinds of things that I can do. We can do because um, our intent is good and our Values are clear, but now our operating model is aligned with them. And that is like unlocking in a whole new world. But that's where the courage part comes in. We had to go through a massive reorganization of Intermountain, a great organization that was not broken in any way in order to begin to fully exploit the power of this model. It was hard, took a lot of flack. Governance got a lot of flack from the community. It scared our caregivers. It was really tough, but we can't imagine what it would be like if we hadn't had the courage to do that 
now it turned out to be a couple years before the pandemic started mm. and it really prepared us. Um, as you, you know, as you probably know, there are a lot of providers who are not in the kind of models that, you know, Intermountain is in. Um, what kind of guidance or advice would you give providers, but also payers who are wanting to go down this pathway of moving into these alternative value-based payment models? So um, this is where it's hard not to sound preachy, Aparna. Um, so I'm a pediatric ICU doctor. And um, let's say I understood that there was a superior way to treat sepsis in children. One that was less invasive, less painful, more successful, less expensive. Mm -hmm. And I chose not to do it because I just liked the way I was doing things before. That's exactly what payers and providers are doing right now. They're doing what's comfortable for them. They're not actually doing what's best for society and they know it, most of them. And they are lacking either courage or the ability to focus or they're focusing way too much on how they're currently being paid. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is not only is this the wrong thing to do, um, they're gonna run out of road here before too long. As increasingly um, our government pay patients are moving into, into at-risk models mm -hmm. and some commercial payers, thank heavens, are beginning to change their expectations around keeping people well instead of just keeping uh, taking care of them when they're sick. Um, and if they don't change now, um, there are gonna be a lot of disruptors who are gonna come in and eat their lunch. And uh, they, they really need to get moving, even if they're only caring about their own existence. Okay, so it's almost becoming an imperative is based on what you're saying. It, it's a moral, economic, and um, social imperative to do this. Okay. Um, given the importance that um, of, of moving into these models, both in terms of addressing access and quality and outcomes, but also health equity, and we know that many providers are still in fee-for-service, so reflecting back on you know, addressing the health disparities issue, what types of actions do you think providers who are not in these alternative models, at least not yet, what, what actions do you think they can take in terms of addressing uh, disparities? Um, I think they need to start to measure and start to act. And look, um, I have a lot of respect for my, for my colleagues. We, we make things way too complicated. So, um, you know, they say, well, you know, what is the approved measure? What's the right metric? Um, who am I going to report this to? Who's going to validate it? What we've decided to do is just get started, Aparna. Aparna. Um, we think this is important for clinical reasons, for reasons that are aligned with our mission. We will adapt as the measures change and the expectations change. But um, I think we have our clinicians fired up enough now that they won't stop doing what we started because they know it's right and they want to make things better for people. So my my message would be get started at some level. It can be a small circumscribed pro, uh, project, um, but you should talk about it a lot. You should let people know why you're worried about it. And you should make this part of, as a leader, you should make this part of your conversation with your, with your caregivers. Okay. 
So some of this, it sounds like is setting, maybe picking particular goals and, and rallying people around those goals and, and figuring out a way to achieve those goals. Absolutely. It's just like any change management. You got to make your case. You got to get a plan in place. And then you've got to move people along, hopefully in, as, in a way that's as non-threatening as possible. But you need to make it an inevitability that this is happening. And it is. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, given the land's focus on, you know, promoting alternative payment models, and we're, we're working on trying, you know, using APMs to address health equity, based on your experience, are there ways in which we should be thinking about designing these APMs differently or more, you know, intentionally in terms of addressing health equity? You know, um, I, I will give you my two cents on this. Uh, I think there's actually an analogy with how um, encouragement towards vaccination has worked um, during the last section of the pandemic. I think we initially all hoped that everyone would get, get vaccinated because it was right. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people did, but not everybody and not enough people did. Then we thought, well, gosh, by and large, people thought, let's really encourage people. Let's run lotteries. Let's give bonuses. Um, guess what? That didn't work that great either. And it, in the end, um, there are going to have to be some sticks involved. And I think we've come a ways. And by the way, I give enormous credit to the federal government of moving us towards this direction of value-based care. Um, they have made this part of the conversation. I think we're at the place where we've tried it because it's the right thing to do. We've talked a lot about upside risk at times. Yeah. Um, it's time to just get down to it. Um, you know, if one thing I've learned about the payers and the providers in the United States through the pandemic, they're really smart and they're really capable. And they've done, they did wonderful things when their back was against the wall. And they actually, many of them came out really quite strong. Um, I think we need to make um, relatively swift definitive change and that these should be a lot less choice and a lot more action. And I, I, I guarantee you that the creativity of my colleagues uh, will result in, um, in a massive shift in how healthcare is delivered in the United States, and it'll be good. Okay. Um, are there things that you would change in terms of how these models are designed to better address health equity? I mean, we've had 10 years of experience, you know, after the ACA passed and CMMI launched all its models and the private payers had their models. Um, you know, we have sort of a decade's worth of experience with APMs, and now we have this, you know, major focus on health equity. Based on all those lessons learned, are there things that you would want to change or you think need to be changed in terms of these design of these models that would better address health equity? So I take a very simple-minded approach to this, <clears throat> and it's predicated on a belief that um, providers and payers um, almost without exception want to do the right thing. I would require reporting of outcomes um, based on race and other um, um, health inequities, including potentially rural status, et cetera. And I'd make them really public. And if we go back to the early days of federal quality reporting, yeah. we got enormous movement based on transparency. Um, the penalties were of some importance, but for, large, relatively successful organizations, relatively small. Nobody 
wanted to be a crummy organization. And I, I would guarantee you that if we changed so that we just started talking about this on a regular basis and the performance of both payers and providers with regard to people with different backgrounds and different risk factors was publicly reported, rapid change would occur because everyone would want to do the right thing. Okay. So it sounds like public reporting and transparency is, we know has worked in the past and we'd want to continue down that pathway for this. I, I would ride that. I mean, it's the play of the winner strategy. It's worked before, right? Yeah, right. And look, there's probably lessons to learn in terms of um, adoption of EMRs. Was it done perfectly? Mm -hmm. But it, it became a must do. It was a financial imperative. Um, I think there's some things that we would do differently based on um, what we've learned around the early days of EMR mm -hmm. adoption, but it did work and they are ubiquitous now. So what I would say is take some of the lessons from what we've learned about public re reporting about EMR adoption, incorporate them into some relatively rapid change around health equity. Okay, um, that's, that's great insight. Thank you for that. Um, I'm curious about, uh, you know, if there are any other insights that you would like to share with our Spotlight on Action listeners, both in terms of what you see are the challenges, but also what you see as the opportunities for transforming our, you know, healthcare system. You know, I think probably the, the single biggest one is um, U.S. healthcare is unaffordable. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a proud and patriotic American and I love medicine. I always have, um, you know, for us to spend 18% of our GDP and get the worst public health outcomes of any developed country is just hard for me to wrap my mind around. And at the same time, the cost shifting that has uh, been done to, to, to working people and the amount of their healthcare that's coming out of their pocket, the shift over the last decade, is really quite distressing as well. And here we are in the richest country in the world and um, one out of three people are rationing healthcare in some fat form or fashion because they can't afford it. It's just wrong. We can do better than this. And um, I think that is a big part of the drive. So yes, let's reduce unnecessary utilization. Let's make sure our quality is good. Certainly let's work on equity, but if we don't address affordability, mm -hmm. um, then we've got a big problem. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier about, you know, your organization being a measurement uh, driven or measurement based organization. Uh, obviously, to address a lot of the issues we've talked about today, you've kind of come back to the importance of measuring and reporting. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any words of advice for, you know, helping organizations, you know, uh, be the same way that you are in terms of being measurement driven and embracing that measurement driven approach? Well, I, I wouldn't presume to ask them to be like us, but I would ask them to think about what they say is important and where they spend their resources. And, you know, for some of the big fancy um, institutions, for them to build billion dollar multi-billion dollar hospitals that they then need to support with operations. At the same time they're saying it's, they're having a hard time affording to pay for more analytics and measurement. Their audio and their videos not matching. Um, and 
being a leader is about um, prioritization and your strategy is a lot about what you're supposed to do, but it's about what you decide that you're not going to focus on and what you're not going to resource. And, um, you know, if people really do care about equity, they really do care about affordability, um, then they'll change their operations to match that. Okay. So I guess what I'm hearing is the importance of, you know, having a clearly articulated mission and vision and then aligning your and prioritizing your goals towards you know, right. aligning with the mission and vision. Um, but that's true for all initiatives, right? Right, right. Um, but I think that this is particularly acute right now. And um, my hope is that uh, we've reached a tipping point for the country where things really are going to go quite quickly. And again, I will um, remind folks that the disruptors out there um, are really quite ready to um, gobble up large portions of um, both the payer and the provider space um, if we aren't nimble enough to, um, to make the change that, that our patients and our members are relying on us to make. Okay. Uh, believe it or not, that's all the time we have for oh today. Oh, my. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, we could have spent a lot more time talking. I really enjoyed you know, the conversation, Mark, but we'll have to save that for another day and hopefully... Uh, we would love to have you back uh, should your schedule, you know, permit. So I would always make time for you, Aparna. Always. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining uh, the conversation today. Your insights and perspectives on these issues have been very informative. Um, thank you also for all you do to help guide the land to reach its goals of expanding healthcare access, improving health equity, and expanding adoption of APMs. It is difficult, challenging work, but it's also rewarding and vital work for our nation's healthcare system and patients. For all of you listening, thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this conversation, please keep checking the LAND website for more from our Spotlight on Action series, highlighting work to advanced value-based care. This episode and future Spotlights will also be posted on our social media accounts, so be sure to follow us on Twitter at payment underscore network and on LinkedIn by searching for healthcare payment learning and action network.